Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. My name is Matt Phelan and I was just in a pre-recording meeting with Hayley Lewis and we decided to just hit record without any plan. How are you doing Hayley? I'm good thank you. I'm all about winging it so uh, yeah. speak my heart. Looking forward to the conversation Matt. Yeah I, I, well, let's just continue what we we're talking about and then we'll do intros afterwards. We were I, I would ju I've just come out of a meeting at the Happiness Index and like when you work at the happiness index we have a real obligation to look after our people because that's what we talk about it's not just our product and we're trying to organize the christmas party to be really inclusive so it's really a winter festival um and it's from 10 to 4 and it's not about the drunkenness like late night party and all that kind of stuff and a lot of our team are, um, are engineers and and that is their worst nightmare to go to that traditional christmas party and feel like they have to go so you were saying Haley about and I was like we need to hit record because Haley was saying <laughs> some good stuff about making sure that team building just isn't the thing that happens once a year so tell us what you were saying there Haley because I, I was loving it yeah thank you so um I mean it started this is something that I, I started really when I was in management and leadership roles myself um I believe in uh behaving according to the way that you're saying I believe in role modeling what you're saying so it's wonderful to to hear how seriously you take your mission and vision and, and actually that permeating your own organization Matt first of all but what I was saying to Matt was often what what happens with some of my management and leadership clients whether it's in coaching or, or workshops is this mistaken belief that team building um i'm conscious i'm on podcast i've just did apostrophes uh you, you won't see <laughs> just on apostrophes listener um but yeah team building is something that's separate from the day-to-day -day running of the team and so team building is let's have a one-day event away somewhere in the summer for example yeah um and actually it's about having a forward plan each year of all the team building stuff you're going to be doing each month which is going to be a mix of informal stuff formal stuff stuff during the day maybe stuff in the evening yeah. um things that not only take into account different people's needs and working patterns but also it taps into this idea of the importance of some formal stuff where you're focusing on things that matter to your team so you might do stuff around resilient you might have a session on resilience for example and the, the informal stuff which is uh, time away from the work environment whatever that looks like to connect with each other um yeah. and just thinking carefully about that rather yeah. than last minute yeah. um and so a lot of the stuff that i do as i say with my clients is helping them create those forward plans which will include things like whether it's um winter festival stuff as you say um or whether it's easter or or, or whatever um but yeah a bit like we do with our content plans as business yeah. owners you know our social media content it's no different for kind of your yeah. team development team building don't leave it to chance don't leave it to the last minute there should be stuff you're doing each month yeah and we'll go we'll come back to intros in two seconds but i just want to link the point there which is is there's a, there's there's a book out by our head of neuroscience clive highland called the quantum way and it with inside the happiness index mostly people hear us talk about um neuroscience but mm -hmm. also baked into that we use a lot of quantum physics which can put people off when they hear that because they remember school and they would like probably had like a really bad experience with physics but 
at its core it's really describing a lot of what you're talking about there which is when you start applying quantum physics to the work culture we just talk about energetic connections mm. and the, that that we're all energy and it's all about how we how we make time for for those energetic connections which sounds really geeky and it's not why we're here today so i'm just going to link that point in and say clive's book's awesome and it can explain it way better than me um so hey let's let let's go let's go back to you um please introduce yourself well, hello, yeah, because people are probably listening to this going, who the flipping heck is this woman? <laughs> um, so um, hello, everyone. So my name is uh, Hayley, Hayley Lewis. Um, uh, uh, I'm a doctor of psychology, so I'm a doctor of organisational psychology. So my expertise is in particular leadership and management behaviour and how this impacts organisational culture and performance. Um, yeah. I have a sideline, however, around female entrepreneurship. So my doctoral research was in what are the psychological factors that actually help women set up their first business. So after corporate life um, and what can help them navigate the, the turbulence of those first few years of becoming a business owner. And we know it can be a rough old ride. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I've created a blueprint um after two and a half years of research so yeah. um, as well as working with large organizations and and from middle managers up to chief exec level i also have started to do more and more work with women who are either looking to set, leave a senior role in a corporate environment and sap on their own or maybe they're in the first year or so and they've got a bit stuck yeah. um so yeah my work is very varied i also um i manage the uh, part one of the doctoral program in occupational psychology at Birkbeck College in London. Um, so that's for trainee psychologists to get their registration, so to become registered um, regulated psychologists. So, uh, yeah, a lot of fingers in lots of pies, but it keeps yeah. me out of mischief, Matt. Yeah. How long does it, how long does something like that take, Hayley, just to, to, to bring us into that? It sounds like an incredible um, and important lot of work. What the, the, your doctorate so um so to become an occupational psychologist you're f after undergrad you do uh, an msc a master's yeah. in occupational and organizational psychology that's obviously one year full-time or two years part-time yeah. um and then you can go on so there's a number of different routes but the, the main route is you then do two years doing part one which is uh d demonstrating your practice out there with the public and, and organizations um, and logging that practice and then at the end of that you get registered with our regulator you can then go on to the second part which is a doctorate where you spend two to three years doing your original doctoral research so you conduct two big studies um and then yeah you have to go through the you you, you write that um, so my thesis, for example, was I'm never going to write this much again, but it was over 200 pages. It was like 55,000 wow. words. Um, I don't know where it came from. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, you go through a really tough examination where you're put through your paces um, by two professors who will just grill you on every aspect of your research, and rightly so. Um, yeah. And then you either kind of pass or not. And uh, yeah, and then and then you're out there 
doing stuff i mean i i was i've been practicing as a as a psychologist for um, almost 25 years yeah. so i'd already been out there and and i actually came to the doctorate later on in life um, i had other stuff that i was doing and and i went into corporate roles and and all that stuff um so so yeah so there's a number of ways you can get to it and i think um if you're going to do it you've got to be really passionate about what you're what you're about and, and what your topic is and and how it adds to the world um so so yeah just a couple of things on on specifically on your work there just mm -hmm. i did an analysis of my own so i do not not recently but occasionally do a bit of angel investment myself and i just did analysis of one year and i just went back to i just used contacts on linkedin people that had contacted me and said would you invest in, in my business Mm. And I think it was probably three years ago now. And then I looked, tracked it forward to how many investments I made. I made four investments. Um, the end of the pipeline is four investments. Um, two were in male founders and two were in female founders. When I tracked it back um, to source, if I just keep, if I round the numbers to keep it simple because I don't have them in front of me, mm. I was contacted by about 100 people and about 98 of them were men. Mm -hmm. Um. I imagine you sort of looked into that sort of stuff. Like, is that is that is that a, is that something is that something you see, or is that because of the way that I project myself, and maybe I am I, I'm putting off people, female um, entrepreneurs contacting me. Like, what what would you say on that? It it depends on a number of things. Um, so I was looking in a so my second study looked at a UK context. Um, I I deliberately took a feminist stance with my research and an anti-capitalist stance. So, so I was very clear um, on my starting premise because one of the things, I get asked this a lot actually, because people are always really curious, particularly fellow business owners, whether they're men or women or however they identify. Um, people are always really curious um, and about what what kind of drove me to, to study female entrepreneurship. and one of the things that was starting to feel less and less right and just becoming more and more irritating was the the kind of real dominant narrative that you are only a successful business owner whether you're a one-person business or a micro business owner based on how much your how much money you're making so your turnover your sales etc etc and that just hasn't felt right for a long time and yeah. And yet that's how many empirical studies have measured successful performance of small and micro businesses. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And so and so if you're not making big money, again, listener, I'm doing apostrophes. Um, if you're not making big money, if you're not growing your business and, and getting lots of employees, you are not deemed to succeed. Yeah. And so I think it starts kind of with empirical research it then permeates kind of the media and social media and so we're kind of bombarded with and even programs like the apprentice and, and so on and so forth we're bombarded with this message about messages about what it what a successful business owner looks like and so instantly what starts to happen is many women will look at that and go oh that's not me yeah. and so may talk themselves out of making that that leap and what i was finding matt was with my 
corporate clients. So around 50% of my day-to-day work is executive coaching. And what I was finding is with many of my female coaching clients, so women who are in incredibly big, powerful roles in in whatever sector they work in, partway through our coaching relationship, when that trust is built, it was almost like a it was almost like a conspiratorial hand behind, you know, mouth behind hand whispering to me. Um, I don't think I want to make the next step into chief exec or president of the company or what I've always wanted to do is set up my own coaching business or set up my own yoga practice. But I don't think I can do it. And this was happening so much. I was like, wow, these are super successful women. And they are saying they cannot set up their own business. And so it was really those things that fueled my desire to go, "This, this can't be right. And certainly both the studies that I conducted, particularly my second one, where I interviewed lots of um female business owners who run one person businesses or micro businesses in the uk what my research found the opposite you know uh really these women are really driven and but they've they've got very clear practices that have helped them many of the women that i spoke to built up their own savings their own big nest so they didn't need to get seed investment angel investment they didn't need that um and I'm seeing more and more women do that where they're building up their own capital. Yeah. And I think it also depends, Matt, on the kind of business that you're setting up. Yeah. As well. You know, if you want to set up a tech company, if you want to set up a, a bioengineering company, you are going to need big money. And so yeah. that's where you do need uh yeah. investment. But if you're if if your business is you, if you're running yeah. a coaching business, for example, then perhaps investment is less of an issue. Yeah. I just want to put um, our um, listeners into the direction of a really good organisation in this area. Um, Hayley, have you heard of Diversity X? No. So Diversity X is um, is to support, um, and I love this, I don't always like labels, but I love this label, which is underestimated founders. Oh, right. um, and it's set up by Kevin Muffain, um to, to to address the the issues on who gets investment um and and rebalance that but if anyone is listening to Haley and thinking you know what that sounds like me and i want to go and start a business but actually i do want to set up a biotech mm. business whatever, and, they, and it does need funding um because i know how cash hungry a tech company is running one myself <laughs> um check out diversity x and there's an amazing community of people from all different backgrounds that support each other through that that journey so check kevin mcfain's out diversity x so wow there were there's so much stuff even in that piece Hayley, that to, to talk about um just 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 rolling forward i still haven't asked you the number one question we ask everyone that comes on the podcast which is what makes you happy Hayley? what makes me happy that's that's definitely changed over time you know i'm nearly 49 um and the things that make me happy now are less material things mm. it's time in nature with my husband you know so having we we go on lots of hiking holidays that just makes me so happy being outside in the fresh air and having really good conversations with the man that I love and um other things that make me happy uh I've got really addicted to podcasts I can't get enough of them and so yeah, you're on one yeah yeah and so and so having having time 
to listen to podcasts, reading. So just really simple things make me happy. Moving my body, reading, time with friends and family, that that's it. I'm quite a simple creature. I think when I was younger and certainly when I was in a corporate environment, I'm very unhappy. Um, it was all about material. I, I thought material things made me happy. Yeah. Um, and and certainly it gave me that little, you know, buying stuff, gave me that little frisson and kept me happy for a little bit. But compared to now and the things that make me happy now, it's fundamentally different. Um, yeah. I just That leads me on nicely, Hayley. There's so many people that come on. I think there's a link between people who study and work in this area and nature, because that mm. is one of the most... When I generally ask that question, family obviously comes out a lot, um, as do pets and all the things that you'd probably imagine travel comes out a lot. And, and obviously we've got the data, but I'm just talking about people when I ask them. Mm. But when it comes to the guests and any listeners that are used to it, nature definitely comes out for a lot of people that happen to study broadly in this area which I, f I find that fascinating as well like maybe i need to get all of our guests together for one huge walk in a forest at some point I think <laughs> that, I might would, do that, actually. that would be amazing so i need to connect you with someone so my friend denise dr denise taylor she did her research on a meaningful older life she won't mind me saying it because she put it out on yeah. linkedin but yeah. denise is in her 60s she just celebrated her 64th birthday she did her doctorate in her 60s yeah. Um, and she is an absolute legend and inspiration, but she owns her own woodland. So she does vision quests. So yeah. she was really interested in why is it in certain cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, we revere older people. Yeah. So you go on a vision quest, for example, in some cultures when you're young, when you're a youth, but you also go on another one when you become older. Yeah. to find your meaning and purpose and you're revered as a as a wise elder and yet in countries like the uk and the us um we write off older people um yeah. you know the moment you retire and so you're seen as not particularly beneficial and so her research was all about that but she owns a woodland and she does coaching her, she yeah. has she does her she's got she took a picture she's got she's got two chairs with a table in the woods in the middle of the woods and that's where she does her coaching but she does vision quests where you go off in the wild wow. and find yourself and such an interesting woman and yeah. um will happily connect you to maybe she'll let you use her wood <laughs> that's amazing it's funny I, I had a really horrible situation in a church once when i went to a christening and the priest um stopped stopped my daughter and i at, at the door and asked my daughter who was probably one at the time so she couldn't speak like asked three times in a row if my daughter was a pagan and i was just like i was so like she's a toddler was, yeah <laughs> and it was so like imagine if he was polite he probably would have said has has your daughter been christened yeah that's probably what he would have said but he chose not to yeah. and it's funny because i think pagan can mean like that people think it's like human sacrifice or yeah. bad or whatever. i looked i actually googled it the other day so i'd forgotten about the event i got it rid of it in the back of my mind but i was thinking about it so i googled it and it says something like it's people that believe that um human beings and nature are connected 
Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, maybe I'm a pagan <laughs> after all. Maybe he just identified me as a pagan. But anyway, we don't, I don't want to. We've got so much stuff today. We can get into religion. <laughs> we, we'll, never, we'll never get where, where we want to go. I want to talk about success for a bit, Hayley, if yeah. that's all right, because yeah, you talked about that in your intro. And it, I think it's so important, isn't it, in terms of almost redefining what we mean by success? Because mm -hmm. we. Chris, my business partner, and I, we built a company up when we were in our 20s and sold it. And, and I had this really weird conclusion at the end that I didn't want to be Steve Jobs, which I know sounds like a really weird thing. But if you, loads of people revere Steve Jobs and they think, oh my God, he's created Apple, he's brilliant, all this kind of stuff. But he also, from from what you read, had pretty poor relationships with um, key people in his life, including his daughter. Uh, terrible in terms of how he looked after his own health from what i read just drank coca-cola all day and um, mm. worked ridiculously long and guess what right he's created an amazing company that lives well beyond but my own personal conclusion was that in my future i'd never want to like forego all those things so when i think about success personally being able to do the school run every morning it, that's success for me mm. and i want i want the happiness index to be a global business and we we, we collect data in 100 countries and i've got I don't want it to sound like I'm not ambitious, but I want, I, I do think it's important that you, I think the world's moved on, hasn't it? From like, oh, you can have everything in life. Like you do need to compromise all that kind of stuff. But I, but with, unless we redefine what we mean by success, mm. how can we ever get everything? Because you can't do everything, can you? You can't, nope. you have to make choices in life between what you want to going to do and those, those are consequences. Absolutely. So, you sort of mentioned that and i just wanted to pick up on like when in your work like do you mm. talk about that, like defining mm. what success is versus what society thinks success is absolutely so and i do this i do this with different kinds of groups matt so um, as i say my my main work is with i, I tend to to work with with managers every, everybody from the first time manager the rabbit in headlights all the way up to really experienced kind of board level chief execs managing directors and particularly when i'm doing work with those groups on building high performance teams it starts with where are you trying to get to first yeah. of all you know so that so we're not talking about necessarily individual success here it's where are you what does success mean for you and and what will that look and feel like and how are you going to define it and how are you going to measure it and then yeah. reverse engineering from that because if you're not clear on that then how can you make the best decisions possible yeah. um, to get there? And then there's then about, for example, you as a, we know that leaders and, and, and leader behavior is one of the biggest factors that impacts team performance and culture all the way up to kind of organizational culture and performance. And so if that's where you're trying to get to, how do you need to show up? What does success mean for you? yeah what does it mean to be a successful leader in the context that you've set um yeah. for for your endeavor um and doing some deep work on that um and then it was actually one of the questions that i asked in my research of women business owners so my my big question was how do you define success because if we're constantly being told that business success is predicated on the the number of you know figures you have after after a pound sign or a dollar sign or whatever yeah. and the number of employees you have well then most of us will be failures i'm a very yeah. proud one person business owner very deliberately so i don't yeah. want to grow i 
I've had lots of employees um, that report yeah. into me, don't want to go there again. And so by normal standards, I'm a failure, but actually I feel really successful. And so um, what was really interesting in, in my own research is the way that the women define success is very different. It's about mm -hmm. reputation. It's about doing meaningful work that has a tangible impact on the clients that you're working with. Yeah. It's about freedom and autonomy, uh, particularly for women who do tend to take on all the additional roles, all the additional admin, life admin and caring responsibilities. And so having freedom and autonomy as to how you run your day and week and month um, and so on and so forth is a big success factor. Yeah. Um, and, and just having that space to think creatively and learn um, and, and feel energized by the work that you do. These are all the things that women were saying were their definitions of success. It's not yeah. that money wasn't important. It was about earning enough money to live a good life. Yeah. And I that think was success for them. I love I love that. And I just want to pick up on one of your points with a bit of data there as well. Like mm. according to namely, 71% of HR professionals are female. Mm -hmm. Um when we look into our database at the Happiness Index, which is obviously skewed towards our customers, just to, to make that point beforehand, which who I would say are all pretty forward thinking because you don't sign up with Happiness Index unless you care about this stuff generally. Mm. Um HR professionals are one of the unhappiest professions we, that we see in our database. And when we run the correlation analysis, which you can do in the platform, the number one reason that comes out, which is different to other professions, is one of the words, you used a different word, but as soon as I say it, I'm sure you'll connect the dots, um, is impact. So if a HR professional, um, and I've never actually split uh, the impact bit down on gender, actually, which is something you could probably do after this, after this now, but knowing that 71% of that database are um, female and that the, the biggest factor that impacts happiness is their, are their, is their role making an impact. Mm -hmm. And if they can't have that, that impact, their happiness slides really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, is that something, you use some similar words there, Hayley, is that something that resonates with you in, in your work? Definitely, yeah. And it, it's made me think of a couple of things. Um, so I, I do work with, HR and organizational development teams. So running programs that give them additional skills, for example, to work as in-house consultants. And we do, one of the things I often do with teams like that is what, what are the foundations of their confidence? Yeah. Um, so um, there's a tool that I use called the confidence triangle. And one of the three, um, aspects of the triangle is impact is knowing that you're having an impact actually gives you data that can boost your confidence um and then for example another one is about your presence which is about how you show up and the relationships that you build um and then the other is about your track record yeah um and your experience and those three things together are a powerful way to boost your confidence. And so I always get, like when I'm working with HR and OD teams, I get them to reflect on, as individuals, how their rank order for those three things. Yeah. And then, because particularly when we used to do in-person stuff back in the day, um, 
I used to give people stickers and so red, amber and green and they'd put them up. So it's a red, like green was the one that was the one you use the most. Pretty much every time, man, it's really interesting what you're saying. Pretty much every time the one that would be the weakest for individuals and then a, an HR and OD as a team as a whole would be impact, yeah. which is about getting tangible evidence yeah. that you've had the impact and made the difference and that what you started off doing you got it to where you needed it to, whether it was introducing a new policy or process, whether it was a kind of leading culture change or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that that's not very scientific, but it, it definitely resonates with, by the sounds of it, what you've found. I think the yeah. other thing that works alongside impact, I wrote down autonomy. I think one of the things I find certainly I, I work a lot with the public sector um it's what I'm passionate about it, it that goes to my own core values I spent 11 years in local government and loved it and yeah. um and I love working with the public sector but one of the things I find with HR and organizational development teams who are in-house is it's not just about not feeling the impact that you're having it's not having the empowerment or the autonomy yeah. to do what you know needs to be done to to do good work yeah. um and that can be really frustrating for people and when we feel disempowered well we're not going to feel happy are we we're not going to feel successful yeah and i just to to knit that in with our our data further for our listeners so the top four drivers um that we see of happiness are safety relationships freedom and acknowledgement Within freedom, if you drill it down, um, is authenticity, autonomy, and acceptance. So those three sit together. It's coincidence that they're all A's, um, but it's that that's where autonomy sits. And just to bring in from a brain type perspective, we label that in our database as instinctive. So it's it's not necessarily how you think rationally; it's how it's how you feel. So it's a feeling, and feelings often get dismissed at work as like these things that don't really matter as we see them as data points. So it's like autonomy isn't something you think about, it's just how your team and people around you make you feel, which is which is very different. Um, again, another conversation for another day. So um, I found you because of the HR um, most influencers list. Mm. Uh, you haven't even, didn't even get that into your intro that you're obviously influential in the HR space. How, tell us about that. How does that how does that happen? So really, really good. Thank you. So it's the second year in a row, which bl absolutely blows my little mind. So um, the first year I made the list. Well, first of all, I didn't even know I got an invite from <laughs> the editor of HR magazine, Joe, yeah. and I didn't know what it was for. It was like we're hosting an event. We're going to be unveiling the most influential people and we'd like to invite you to come along. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, they're, they're inviting just a variety of people who work in the space to make up the numbers. It was at St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. I'd not been out for like 300 years like the rest of us. Yeah. And so Green, I was like, oh. Green Daniels was there as well, wasn't she? I saw them. I yeah, saw them. yeah. yeah. and it was, it was like freedom. So, uh, And I love St Paul's Cathedral. And so I went there thinking I was just going to have a bit of free wine and, and catch up with some people <laughs> that I know. And lo and behold, when like, there's two lists, they've got the most influential HR practitioners so yeah. the, the kind of the top 50 people on that and then the most influential hr thinkers which is 50 people on that list yeah and i was on the list and i remember yeah, stood yeah. there with my drink looking around going well and i was trying to find out how i'd made it and it felt like even though it's not intended to be it felt like this big secret i just couldn't i just couldn't work out 
and then um I then made the list a second time. So I made it this year and I was having a chat with the HR magazine team. And Joe actually said this in her speech. Are we talking about Joe Gallagher? We are. And yeah, she wanted to. Dis- Joe, we know that Joe listens. So hello, Joe. Lovely. Hi, Joe. Um, I wanted, she wanted to dispel some myths. So she made it really clear that you kind of get nominated, um, perhaps by clients or other people in the field. But then um, people who are nominated are. In, not, um, so Holt Business School then looks at each person who's been nominated and they've got some kind of weird algorithms, you'll know all about this um, they've got all sorts of algorithms and they input all sorts of data such as you know your the stuff that you're putting out there or maybe on social media, feedback that you're getting, I imagine I think they look at your website and all sorts of stuff so there's all sorts of data that they collect and they put into this very clever algorithm that they've designed at Holt Business School, and then it comes up Love with it. a ranking. Um, and so then you're ranked as a result of, of that. So, yeah, my ranking was higher in the second year. Um, I went from 21 to 13, unlucky for some. Um, and so clearly, I'm doing something right, and I think partly it's because I'm so passionate about sharing information and making psychology and psychological research and concepts accept more accessible to the general public, particularly middle managers um, and also practitioners in my field who are just starting out. Um, it's often so unwieldy. I mean, I struggle. I I'm, I call myself a pracademic, Matt, and so I've got a foot in, in practice and, and a bit of a foot, maybe a toe. Did you make pracademic up? Because I saw that on your thing. I, 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 no, I'm not going to claim that. I came across the title once a long time yeah. ago. I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't claim ownership. But I think I initially I've been only one of the ones out there on LinkedIn calling yeah. myself that. But now I've seen lots of people call themselves that. And I love yeah. it. I'm here for it. But yeah, I've got a kind of a toe in academia. And I struggle, you know, I read journal articles and I have to read each sentence like 50 times. And even I struggle. And so I'm like, if you want. By the way, thank you for sharing that because. For you and everything that you've achieved for us normal people to hear that makes us feel better so oh i'm you. as i'm as normal as they come and you know i'm i'm the it was funny what you said i actually failed my physics gcse uh but um i kind of academia's never come easy to me at all i have to i have to work really hard and but mum but i come from a i come from a i came from a very poor working class background in you know i grew up in the 70s and 80s and it was mum for mum and dad it was all about education and um and working hard and and kind of getting yourself educated and and so that's what i've done but it definitely doesn't come easy and so it's kind of always struck me if i'm struggling what what does your average lay public yeah feel about this and there's so much amazing and also one of the things that just makes me mad is so much empirical research in journals is behind paywalls yeah absolutely. and so it's not accessible and so um because i have access through my academic role i'm like right i'm going to act as a bit of a bridge and so that's that's where things for example like the sketch note summaries that i do um came about it's why once a week i break down a, a a kind of a research study on linkedin and people really engage with it and i tell you what gladdens my heart is when somebody reads like looks at a sketch note summary or they read one of the studies that i share and then they go off 
and read a bit more and they'll come back and say i learned this or or they'll question me about it and going yeah i i i'm not sure what you said here is and i welcome that as long as it's constructive because it shows me that people are hungry for learning and and um so yeah that that's that's kind of so long story short about the hr magazine and, and hr most influential i think it's because i do lots for free and i share lots of free content and advice and tools and tips out there in in social media land well it's good to know the universe works and that it, it comes <laughs> back to you with, with stuff like that so that i mean that's great to hear Haley. i also saw um that you're a fan of sean acres happiness advantage oh, yes do you know what that i put that out today and i thought i i was like oh god what what a perfect day to share that when i'm yeah. with matt for the happiness of um podcast yeah. and um i love his book and i love his te his ted talk and you'll see in the comments on that linkedin post so many people have said it's one of the best ted talks yeah it's one of the best books um, it's, it's as an employer of people that work in happiness when you interview people that is often referenced like why what got you interested in this area and they will be like oh yeah i watched i watched yeah. sean's uh, ted talk so it's it's yeah it's it, it, for those that haven't read it or watched the ted talk hayley mm. can you the uh, takeaways yeah so um one of the one of the main things that that sean talks about both in the book and in the ted talk which is obviously him summarizing some of the things in the book is the power, the kind of the power of the ripple effect, which is essential. I suppose it's essentially what you're what you were talking about earlier in terms of physics. What you what you put out, you get back. And yeah. so there's the power of the ripple effect. And so how you show up has a ripple effect on the world around you, um, and in a work context, on on your team, on your on your colleagues. Um, one of the things that really stood out for me, both in the TED talk and in the book. Um, and it's also something that that Sean has written about, um, for example, in Harvard Business Review articles is yeah. about his own experiment. So in the book, he talks about the experiments that he's done as a Harvard researcher with different groups of staff. And one of the the experiments is one that I always draw upon when I'm teaching people to be more resilient. So when I'm sharing kind of evidence based tools and techniques. So. Um, Sean was working with some burnt out consultants at KPMG in New York and he conducted an experiment where he put some of the consultants into a control group so they just carried on as normal and he put another set of consultants into an experimental group and he asked those consultants um he gave them a choice of five things to do which is on the sketch note that I've shared so for example um stretching for 10 minutes or practicing gratitude or, or there were five things that you could do and you just needed to pick one and do it consistently every working day for three weeks and they baselined he and his colleagues baseline level of happiness job satisfaction and life satisfaction as well as well-being they, they baselined a number of things before the experiment and then immediately after and then they went back nine months later and what they found unsurprisingly with the experimental group so immediately after they'd uh they'd increased um they'd increased on all the points uh, on all yeah. the data points but they went back nine months later and and they'd further increased because many of the consultants had carried on engaging in that practice and that really gets to the heart of what sean talks about in his book 
and the TED talk around being intentional about yeah. how you craft your day, your time. It is something that that um, Mihai Chiksat Mihai talks about in his book Flow. So the famous psychologist talks in his book Flow about being intentional about how you go about your how you behave and how you go about your time uh, and how you go about your day can have a big impact on you, but those around you as well. Yeah, uh, I would, for our listeners that, I mean, that's two books there that have got to be read. And I also think Sean was like the start of one of the first people that I heard talking about like happiness being a precursor to success, just to yeah. net up the conversations that yeah. we had around like, and there's a there's a research piece you can get in the bibliography of my book around how um people think that basically if they go to school they work hard mm. they get a good job they become ceo they become happy and that there's so many studies out there now shows the other way around if you're happy you're more successful but yeah sure sean was certainly um one of the first people to start talking about that and a third book to add into this book so we've got sean acres uh, sean uh, we've got sean acres book um we've got the flow book by who's flow by again me hi chick sent me hi not the easiest name um yeah. he, was an, he was an eastern european psychologist but the book is called flow if you put yeah. flow into the search engine it will come up as the number one book uh, yeah. and you can get it from all good bookstores and there's another there's another book going on to that point about being intentional called happiness by design um mm -hmm. especially if you are into design and function and stuff like that have a read of that because when you there, there there's a three really good books to get people into this area because you start pulling bits together from those books then it really does start to change the way that you think if, if, if you've been interested hey we're already 40 minutes in and <laughs> we're only like 10 minutes over i do the, i suppose the last question i've got for you what's the most what's the thing that's really getting you interested in the moment at the moment that you're working on that you just want to share with people oh great question um what's the thing that's getting me really interested i think the the big thing is <laughs> it's not a very happy topic i'm sorry and it is something that i spoke to joe about in the hr most influential podcast yeah is around doing the right thing yeah. by by employees at a, at a time when it feels like everything is against us yeah. so you know, there's wars going on. We've come out the back of a pandemic that has absolutely decimated many people's well-being. Um, cost of living crisis, constant changes in government, which is making everything feel incredibly unsafe and unstable. It's like yeah. there's a perfect storm of stuff. Yeah. And I think, I think it's too easy for organizations of all sorts of sizes and sectors for their first course of action to go to cuts yeah. and but um cutting jobs so people losing their jobs but then the work remains behind so there's two things that i'm thinking deeply about around that that doesn't need to be the default answer is cuts yeah. and cuts to jobs. And then secondly, how can we as practitioners in the HROD work psychology space make sure that we are not colluding in this idea of more for less? Yeah. And because often what we find more for less ends up meaning is human beings having to do more work 
but not getting paid more. Yeah. Um, and it starts to impact their home lives and, and all sorts. So I'm not saying I've got answers to these very gnarly problems, but I'm certainly thinking more deeply about them. I really resonate with that, Hayley. The reason I do, and just, I suppose we'll just share if I list this something about what it's like to run a tech company. I have a real issue at the moment. I suppose it goes back to the thread of this whole conversation, mm. picking out any companies, but I'm picking out um, venture capital that is broadly growth at all costs. And what I mean by that is if you speak to traditional venture capitalists, you will hear, well, we basically make 10 bets. We make 10 bets. One of those bets of those companies we invest in will, be, will turn out to be a unicorn. The other nine will fail, right? And mm. we may have invested, I don't know, 50 million, but the one that um, went really well created us 500 million and we and, and they love putting X at the end of it. So we 10X'd it or whatever, and it's all great. And we're really ha happy at the Happiness Index because all our investors we know personally, so we don't have venture capital. And, and I always say that, that you never know, that might change down the line. We don't say we're anti it. But the real moral issue that I have with it at the moment, personally, is that the collateral damage that's done to the other nine, because it's just assumed that that's okay. To, mm. And this is also the, the, almost the flip of it, create a load of jobs that are not actually sustainable real jobs yet, where, where at some point, and this has just happened in the last three or four months, if you look at a lot of the tech companies in the HR space that are venture capital backed, they've basically had about a 30% cut in their funding from venture capital, which means, guess what? They've had about a 30% cut in their people. Mm. Real, I'm starting to, I think about this a lot more, a, a real moral problem with that, that founders, it goes back, so it's going right back to the beginning of the conversation of where you get money and how you grow a business and, and business will cost. There's a real moral issue now with those companies that literally go at all costs, but, People move their lives around, they change jobs. And, and, and I also want to clarify the happiness index is not perfect. We make loads of mistakes, just like every company in the world. I've got an unhappy employees um, and I'm working every day on that. So we're not perfect either, but we're trying to make calculated um, investments to move forward. But in a world where you think, well, one out of 10 is going to succeed, which means 90% is going to fail, there's a lot of collateral damage in people's lives. Um, so it's just just linking into your point, really, Haley, on on those two worlds. So obviously, something that we're both thinking about. Mm, definitely, and because there's something about being able to sleep at night, and yeah. so there's something again. You know, the bulk of my work is with leaders of uh, all levels, and there's something about a being intentional yeah. about what you do. And what you don't do, um, and what I say to a lot of the leaders who are who are also grappling with some of this stuff is, do you think you were a good person? Were you the most compassionate you could be when yeah. you made this decision that affected your your staff? Can you look at yourself in the mirror? You yeah. know, can you can you go to sleep at night thinking I did the best I could? I was the most compassionate, thoughtful leader I could be. Doesn't mean I didn't make tough decisions. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought about them carefully, and if you can, if you can legitimately do that, that's all many of us can do. But my concern is, so many of us have just got caught up in acting out of habit, 
yeah rather than just taking that step and that time and space just to think a bit more intentionally but also owning the consequences of your decisions and this i've, I've always i've been joking a lot recently that if i ever write a book it's going to be called you can't have your cake and eat it which is is the, is the <laughs> most common earlier, really, i know which is the most common phrase i use with particularly my coaching clients yeah. you cannot <laughs> Every choice is legitimate. And so if you choose not to spend time with your staff, if you choose to bulldoze a decision through to cut staff and so on and so forth, that's a, that's fine. That's a legitimate decision. Yeah. But own the consequences of that. You cannot expect staff to continue to be engaged and motivated and to, to kind of go above and beyond and, and, and all that stuff. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So own the consequences of your decision. but approach your decisions in a much more thoughtful and intentional way and i think i mean I, we haven't really even got time to get into things like baseball <laughs> and stuff today but I, there's also a core i suppose it goes back to your original point where, again we're not let's not get into capitalism and everything today but there's a core of most companies of which mm. is called articles of association mm. yeah it focuses a company on profit and when again i don't want to get into whether profit's wrong or right because importantly for my company it's important to make profits yeah. stay in the company but the issue is whether you have what period of time you look that over because i remember being approached about a role as a ceo and i had to turn down even the conversation because what they wanted to do is is grow the business and i looked at the business and thought well the only way that you can grow the business is get the profit down to zero because you're reinvest investing all the money but as a ceo if you come in and do that with two quarters time you're going to get fired because you're mm. the ceo who came in and crashed the profit whereas there's a real core and and we'll just touch on b corps quickly which are not perfect in any way but one thing for our listeners to know that if you're looking at b corps there's a there's an actual change of a legal articles association to include things like planet and purpose alongside profit so it's not to say that profit uh, it's not that you're changing it to say profit isn't the only mm. thing it's bringing other things in like community that Absolutely. you actually thing for so um we've only got two minutes so i'm going to ask you Haley, to, to <laughs> add a little a little bit on that like future of i suppose future of organizations at b corps yeah. anything you've seen out there that's that that you find interesting at the moment yeah so i'm seeing more and more um stuff out i mean i haven't seen lots of kind of scientific research but i am seeing more and more interesting thoughts and ideas again out on social media particularly from younger generations i can't believe i'm using that phrase but um <laughs> who we know are much more inclined to think about the the organizations they want to work for they want to work for ethical organizations and by ethical we mean um it's balancing profit with purpose and kindness and social responsibility and so I, I think we're seeing a definite groundswell in um I, I think what we're I think what we're going to see in the coming years is a real and we're already seeing it this the start of it is a real talent management issue in lots of more traditional organizations yeah. um because people will vote with their feet particularly as the as the work for newer and newer workforces come through who think in a very different way who've grown up in a very different world and yeah. so 
I think it's almost forcing more traditional longer standing organizations to take a good look at themselves and really reflect on their ethical practice yeah. um, and how that runs alongside profit because look I'm I'm no idiot you know we live in a we live in a, a capitalist society and I'm a business owner myself and it's important but it can't be at the expense of human beings and their health and well-being and happiness yeah I was on um I was on a I was invited as a speaker to like a H a FTSE 100 HR directors meetup. Like I think they needed a geek, so I got to go <laughs> and later basically. But uh, it was fascinating because one of the HR directors turned to me, and we were having this conversation about, as you said, the younger generation is what they were saying. And someone someone just turned to me and they addressed to me, and they were like, "When's a when's a younger generation just gonna like get with it and know they have to work hard?" And it's like we just got this the whole wrong way round, like. They are prepared to work hard for things, balance those things over uh, uh, Haley has just talked about. But if it's just about money, you're going to struggle. Um, well, you're not going to struggle to always recruit people, but you're going to struggle to recruit the diversity of talent that you want. Um, and you're going to end up with lookalikes. Um, and that's where a lot of the finance industries ended up. But yeah. Haley, um, I'm going to get one last question, right? You referenced your age um, once, directly, <laughs> once indirectly on this podcast. Um, if the 20 year old Hayley um, met you, <laughs> what um, bit of advice would you give the 20 year old um, Hayley? I would say to the 20 year old Hayley, there's no rush. Um, I was so impatient to achieve all the things and part of that was fueled by constantly comparing myself to everyone around me. Um, there's no rush and, and particularly as we know now, you know, many of us are going to be working well into our 80s, 90s, you know, uh, Professor Linda Grattan wrote the excellent book, The 100 Year Life. And yeah. um, this is something that I talk to a lot of my students about. So those who are coming into the field of organisational psychology, and they want it all now, you know, some of them are in their, their mid 20s, and they want to be chartered, and they want to be registered, and they want it all by next year. Yeah. And, and I say to them, what's the rush? Yeah, you know, you're going to be working another 40, 50 years, potentially yeah surely it's about kind of really honing your practice and your craft so i would say to 20 year old hayley there's no rush and also drink some water before you go to bed <laughs> i love that hayley i'm gonna play that part of this podcast to the eight-year-old isabella my daughter because i think that is great advice um hayley you've been amazing i'm really pleased we didn't have a pre-chat and plan the questions and we just had a chat like we went for a coffee so yeah. I'm just going to say thank you on behalf of myself um, and our listeners. And you've shared so generously today with us. So thank you. And we've got an idea now to try and go go for a big walk with all, all the guests that we've ever had. <laughs> that would be amazing. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. It's a real honour. Thank you. Cheers, Hayley. <laughs>